The book of Esther is one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once, which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther's going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai is confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai, but all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep, and he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading, and he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution, and the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. this morning. Um, and so we, we enter into kind of an interesting, interesting sermon, an interesting topic, an interesting way that this book actually pivots and turns around and that uh, the people of God actually get protected by God. Uh, you, you've noticed at every single one of these, you never see God mentioned in this book, but you always see him working. And this morning, you're going to see how he has been working and what he has been doing and how we should live accordingly because of that. Now, this is a picture of a war eagle, right? And this is a picture of a West Forsyth Titan, okay? They are rivals. You probably are not aware of that, but um, they are rivals. And so uh, the war eagles go against the Titans, now, what if in the next big Davie County parade that the War Eagles, the football team, get afloat and they invite the West Forsyth Titans to be on the float and they march down the street going, the Titans are the best! The Titans are the best! 
Wouldn't that be awesome? Would that not be odd if that was to happen? Like, you would probably never see that happening because they are rivals. Now, they're not exactly enemies like Haman and Mordecai were to each other, but this is exactly what is happening in the text. Haman, who thinks that he has won, who hates Mordecai, who wants to hang him the very next day, in fact, he's going in to see the king to request that the king would allow him to go ahead and kill Mordecai because of what he's doing. He enters into the throne room, and the king, who has uh, gotten there after a sleepless night, starts asking some questions to Haman. So, don't, this isn't a screen. So, if you will, just turn in your Bible to Esther. And if you will go to chapter 6. Chapter 6. And Haman has just arrived at the courtyard in verse 5, and the king is inside, and the king is wanting to honor someone, Mordecai, specifically, and this is what it says. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing at the court. And so the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Self? Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Man, this is about me. He's asking me how I would like to be honored. That is a politician, if there ever was a politician, right? How can I be honored? Okay, verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden on, whose head the royal crown has set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Man, Mordecai can really promote himself, can he? I mean, this is a great plan, and he's very excited because he thinks it's going to be him. And in verse 10, Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and, and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. It is at this point that Haman's heart went like this. <gasps> you have got to be kidding me. In the back of Haman's mind, he's talking to himself. This is just me ad-libbing the Bible. He's saying, oh, I just had a gallows built to hang this guy, and now I've got to lead him around on a horse and proclaim that this is what the king likes to do to people he likes to honor. My enemy is going to be riding a horse. Do you know how hard it was for Haman to lead him around that city? And they say the Bible is it comical. Right? This is so, so funny. And so, hurry, he did it. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man who the king delights to honor. So, 
let's, let's review a little bit and go a little bit before Haman arrives at this courtyard. Haman's in his house and he's telling his, his wife and his whole family about how he was invited to a special banquet that the queen put on for him and the king. And he's really excited about it and he feels very important because of it. So he's telling them this. So right before this happens, his wife says these words to them to him. Let gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Because Haman has not only been invited to one banquet by the queen, he has also been invited to a second private banquet by the queen herself, and he's so excited that he gets to do this, he tells his family and his wife, said, look, just go ahead and get rid of Mordecai and go joyfully to the feast tomorrow, Right? Well, after this experience where he had to lead Mordecai through the city and proclaim that he's the best and how he begrudgingly sort of did it, but he did it anyway, he goes back home and he tells his wife and his family all the stuff that had happened that was terrible that day and he was probably crying, maybe. Maybe he wasn't crying, but he was definitely upset. This is what his wife tells him the next day. If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. She had seen the writing on the wall. An amazing, amazing turn of events from where the Jews were going to die to where God begins to work out victory for them. Now with that in mind... I want you to turn a couple of pages over to Esther chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. And this is what it says. For if you keep silent at this time, Mordecai speaking to Esther, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai was going through a very difficult time and so were the whole race of the Jews. But this is what Mordecai knew. God would deliver them. Now Mordecai had no clue how God was going to deliver them. Had no clue at all. Mordecai had no clue that a couple of of days later that he would be riding around on a horse with Haman proclaiming that this is how the king honors people he wants to honor. Had no clue about that. But what he knew is that God was for the Jews, what was happening was wrong, and God would deliver them in some way. He might deliver them through Esther, but if Esther decides not to do anything, deliverance for the Jews would come from another place. And so, We've backed up a little bit in the story. I know this is kind of hard for us to do, but we've backed up a little bit in the story. And this is when Esther actually goes to the king for the very first time. And in Esther chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip 
of the scepter. Touch the tip of the scepter. This means that she was accepted, accepted by the king to come into the throne room. Now, two words that we started the series with is sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty is God is always in control that you may not see him. God is always in control though you may not see him. Providence is God is always moving and working though you might not see him. He is always moving and working though you might not see him. I don't know what you've gone through or what you're going through right now that is really dark, but this is what I do know. God is sovereign, he's in control, and God is providentially working behind the scenes for you, his people. He always does. He's always faithful to you. Sovereignty and providence. So verse 3. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, I want to tell you, tell you something. This is amazing for Esther to actually do this this way. It is amazing that she has prayed and prayed and prayed for entrance with the king and for an audience with the king so that she can handle this thing that is happening to her people. It's amazing. What, is further, what further amazes me about this is if I had been there, my tendency would have been to ask the king in that moment for the deliverance for my people. Right? In that moment. I mean, after all, she was safely going toward the king. She touched the scepter, right? It, obviously, God is a part of that. And, and he has not only accepted her in the throne room, he has told her that she could request anything up to half of the kingdom. Look, women like to shop. <laughs> right? And so, and so she could have asked for anything at that moment, but she knew because of prayer and because of wisdom that God had given her that that was not the moment, that was not the time that she should make her request. This is a lesson for us. There are some times where we need to say some things to some people, right? That we need to approach people. And we need to tell them something or we need to share some information with them or we need to have a conversation. And so we pray and pray for a time to open, right? For God to open that time. But sometimes people jump ahead of the horse and they think that they're supposed to say it at a moment that they're not supposed to say it. They're supposed to wait. Are you with me? John Maxwell, who is not on this next slide, He's not on the next slide. Huh. Okay, great. John Maxwell, on my piece of paper right here that I took with me that I hardly ever look at, says this. The right thing said at the wrong time equals disaster. 
The right thing said at the wrong time equals disaster. Then he says, the right thing said at the right moment equals success. Have you ever wondered why sometimes when you talk to a friend and you needed to talk to them and you said that thing that it just totally didn't work out right? You said what you wanted to say at the wrong moment and didn't wait on God to let you know when to say it. You were not patient enough. You did not wait. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you say something to that friend or that relative or that spouse and it all goes great, right? That is when you waited long enough to say the right thing at the right moment. It is not always the right time to run your mouth. Say that to your neighbor. It's not always the right time to run your mouth. You may be exactly correct in what you are thinking. You may have scripture that makes you correct, that you know you're correct because this is what God says. But if you say that piece of information at the wrong time, it will wind up being disastrous. We wait for the right time. And here Esther is waiting for the right moment and the right time to tell the king something. I'll tell you, it's hard to wait. You ever, you ever have some stuff that burns inside of you that you just want to set straight because justice, you know, justice needs to be done, right? You've, you've got to, to wait. I am married to a woman. And she is different than I am. She likes to handle it then, get it over with, and move on. That is her slant. Mine is, I want to read the situation. I want to see what everybody's thinking. I want to see into, like, if I can get any piece of information that, that might help me in, in this task that I'm about to do. And I will actually prepare myself to go meet, like, a teacher in school. I'll go meet a teacher in school, and we'll sit down, and, and we'll start talking. And I'll just feel like it's just not the moment that I need to bring up whatever I was there to bring up. And I'll just make it meaningful for that teacher and worth their time, but at the same time not bring it up. And I'll come back home, and my wife will say what? What happened? Why didn't you say it? I should have went with you. Right? Right? Now listen, there are sometimes really she should go with me. Because I will, I will back up as much as I possibly can, and I need that push. That's why we're a good team. Are you, are you following me? She pushes me. But at the same time, you know, I'm like, well, it just wasn't the right moment. It just wasn't the right mo moment. But inside of me, I wish it had been. Do you, do you understand? I wish that had been the right moment and we could have just cleared it up. But wisdom tells you that saying the right thing at the right moment will, enter, it will be disastrous. And saying things at the right moment, the right time, is very successful. Sometimes we just have to trust God for that timing. I've been on my way to talk to people several times and when, on the way to go see them or on the way to call them or whatever I'm going to do, I find out that their, their family member's in the hospital or something tragic has happened to them. You know what that's a sign for me of? One, I need to pray for them, yeah. But two, it's probably not the right moment to bring that up in the hospital. Right? 
So when you go to talk to somebody, you read their situation, you try to figure out what's happening in their life, and it might not be the right moment for you to say the right thing, and you just need to wait to the right moment. God does, and he seems to know what he's doing. Seems like we could also kind of hold it and do the same thing and follow his lead. Now, I have always been interested in the fact that there's two banquets. Have you? And Esther, you may have never known that there was two banquets. There's actually four banquets, but two Esther banquets. Like, not only have I thought, well, she could have said it in the throne room and then it would have been over, right? But she decided not to, and there's some wisdom there. But she invited him to the first banquet. Now, I'm sure the food was good. Everybody was having a good time. Haman had a good time. The king was having a good time. They were all glad to be with each other. Well, Esther might not have been glad to be with Haman, but nobody really knew that, right? She hid it very well. So there's, a, there's like this, this banquet, and then there's a second banquet. And, and you, you look at the text, and you just wonder, why couldn't she have taken care of this all in one banquet? I mean, what, what is the big deal? What is the difference? I will tell you. The providence and sovereignty of God. The providence and sovereignty of God. Scripture is written in in various ways. It's actually a book of literature. It's actually a book of art is what it is. Now, do I believe that God gave the words to the people that wrote the books? Yes. Do I believe that the Bible is inspired? Absolutely. Do I believe that we serve a creative God? Absolutely. Do I believe that we serve a God that is artistic? Absolutely. We serve a God. And even in his writings, and even when he uses people, he used artistry. Now, in the Psalms, there's a certain way that some of those progress. And in fact, in Paul, in the books, some of Paul's books, there's a certain way that those books progress. It is that type of progression that Esther is actually written, that artistry, it's actually the same artistry that Esther is written in. And I want to show you that right now. Okay? Mordecai being praised is central in the story. You heard a video just a few minutes ago that calls it pivotal. Well, it's very pivotal, but there's pivotal. That's a word. You can write that down. I made that up. Pivotal, right there in the middle of the book. It is, but, it, but it's a little bit more than that. The author is actually trying to do something a little bit more than just show you a pivot in the story. Mordecai being praised on one side, Esther's banquet, and then on the other side, Esther's banquet number two. And so it puts Mordecai being praised in the center of the story. But that's not all that it does in the book. There's a plan. On one side, it's the plan by Esther and Mordecai to reverse this edict by the king and save the Jews. And on the other side, right after Esther's banquet, after she points out it's Haman, there's a plan to reverse the edict or to help the Jews in the book. So the plan and the plan. So you have a plan, you have Esther's banquet, and then right in the center of this is Mordecai being praised. It is an amazing artistic way to write, but it doesn't stop there. Um, Right before the plan, there's a decree to kill, right? On this side of the plan, there's a decree to save. And you can even make a case that there's a decree to kill. 
On this side of the plan, anyone that would approach the Jews and try to take his property, they can be killed by a Jew. They can defend themselves. So you have two decrees that are on the side. So you have decree, the plan, Esther's banquet, and then Mordecai being praised, but it doesn't stop there. It actually goes all the way to the beginning and the end of the book. The story starts with the banquet and the king's greatness, right? And then Vashti doesn't want to dance or do whatever she he wanted her to do. Doesn't want that to happen. So there's a banquet at the very beginning. At the very end of the story, there's another banquet. It's a banquet to show Mordecai's greatness. And in fact, it's such a big deal that the Jews made a holiday, a two-feast holiday, to commemorate this. So you have banquet, you have Haman elevated, Mordecai elevated, decree to kill, decree to save, the plan, the plan, Esther's banquet, Esther's banquet, then Mordecai being praised is central in the whole thing. What does this mean? Well, I think the best way to do it is to kind of give you a baseball analogy, okay? I have a friend of mine that um, about three years ago, he was coaching his son's baseball team. Now, the way you know who the coach's son is on a baseball team is if the guy's either pitching, playing first, or shortstop. That's usually the, <laughs> I don't know if that's what you did, but nonetheless, that's usually the places that they go. And where they bat in line, you can pretty much determine where the coach's son is. But nonetheless, this was a coach, and his son always wanted to pitch, but he was good at it, but got nervous, and just wasn't good at it on the plate. This was a game, let me, this was a game where the score was 14 to 2, and it was in the last inning. Now, in this league, you can only get five runs before you have to switch up, okay? That's how they play. Other leagues, there's 10, but this was five runs in, and then you switched up. Well, it was the last inning, and so the dad knew, the coach, that there was absolutely no way that they were going to lose. They had 14 points, and the other team had two points. So he said to his son, look, this is your chance to go out and pitch. You can't lose. You can't lose. Just, just relax and go out and pitch. Well, the son was really nervous about this because he even told his dad, but dad, I might lose the game for the team. The dad said, there's absolutely no way you can lose the game for this team because it's 14 to 2. There's no way. But it didn't dawn on the kid, right? So he went out to the plate and, and he threw the ball and he was thrown to the second to last batter in the rotation for the other team. What does that mean? That means that it's either me or someone else uh, swigging, okay? It's either me or someone else. That's what that means, all right? So the, it was all balls. The guy just didn't swing, and it was just all balls. So he, he walked the second-to-last batter. The very last batter, who is the worst, I don't know if this is your kid, but that's the worst player on the team, okay? It's just a fact of life. That's just the way it is. So last batter on the team, he actually threw a pitch, and the kid knocked it into outfield, and so the first base got to third base, and that guy got to first base, Right? So then you got up to the first guy. Now, now you're getting into some people that can play some baseball, right? Some of the kids that can play some baseball. And so he pitches, and he walks that guy. So now you have the bases loaded, 
So the second guy gets up to bat. First one's a ball. Second one's a ball. The third one is a ball, but the batter just wanted to hit something. You ever know that kid? So he stepped out and he hit the ball and then he got to first base and there was two runs that came in off of that hit. So now it is four to 14 and the kid looks at the score. The dad comes out to the mound. He says, look, son, just relax. Just relax. There's no way that you can lose this game. Just relax and pitch. As the dad was walking back, and this is according to his son, the son realized what his dad was saying. They can only get five runs. It's 14 to four. There's no pressure here. I'll just pitch. I don't know if that's what he said. I made all that up. But he realized that, that you know, he was, he was going to win. So the third batter gets up. This is your best hitter. At least that's what it seems like on TV. That's your best hitter. So, first one was a ball, second one was a strike, third one was a strike, fourth one was a strike, and the fifth one was an out. Is that right? The fourth one was an out. Thank you. Just wondering if you're listening, because you went down like this. Oh, God, he's telling a baseball story. That's what, he's just a pray. Lord, help it with this, please. That's what he's saying. All right. So, struck him out. He struck out the fourth batter, and he struck out the fifth batter. And when he struck out the fifth batter, the whole team ran out, and he was the champion of that particular game. Because the moment that he realized that he was pitching from victory was the moment that his fear went away and his mindset changed. Why is Mordecai being led around on a horse central to the story? Because for the believer and for God's children, we are pitching from victory, from winning Amen. We are not losing. The score is in our favor. So what does this mean? That person that you're scared to death to witness to, you've already won. Go witness to them. Get the pressure off your shoulders. Just go tell them about Jesus. If they decide not to receive Jesus as your Savior, you are still on the winning team. That class that you're kind of scared of, of getting involved with because it's children and you're not sure if you want to teach them or not and you're not really sure if they'll like you and you're not sure if they'll be hanging off the walls by the time you're done, go and teach the class. If it goes bad, you are pitching from victory. You are not going to screw up God's victory. You are not going to mess up the team. You're not going to cause us not to win. You are doing things from victory, from winning. You do not have to be afraid. You have won. See, I think the church needs to go out in life with that mindset. The next time that you're tempted to do something and you're tempted to grab that drink, you're tempted to cuss, you're tempted to look at that site on the internet, you're tempted to yell at someone, you're tempted to do whatever it is that tempts you, the moment that you are tempted, your mindset needs to be, I am playing this game from victory. That victory was given to me by Jesus Christ. I am a winner. I'm going to choose accordingly. 
It is not that I do this and all of a sudden I become a failure. It is not that I do this and all of a sudden I've ruined the church. I've ruined Jesus. I've ruined everything that the church stands for. No, 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 no. You cannot lose because Jesus has already won. The central thing in your story and in my story is this fact that you and I have won because God has won the battle for us. Go into battle, do battle, and don't worry about if you're good enough. Do not worry about if you're going to say the right things. Do not worry if it's going to work out right or wrong. Step into the battle, do the battle, because you cannot lose the game. You cannot lose the game. You can't. Listen, I've, I've told you this before. I have a 98% fail rate when it comes to counseling. The 2% of the people that did what I told them to do actually survived. But 98% of the people that come to you for counseling don't want your, don't want your counseling. They want your, your stamp of approval on whatever they're doing. That's just been my experience with it. Are you with me? But those people leaving my office, even though they didn't do what I said, I still won. Because I was faithful to do the task that God had given me to do. I was faithful to pitch to the opposing team and was faithful to that. There is not a person in this room that has accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior that isn't a winner. And you might do something that you feel like you failed at and, and it didn't turn out exactly correct, correct and maybe that conversation didn't go the way that you wanted it to go. But what you need to understand in the back of your mind is you're still on the winning team. Step up to the plate and throw the ball again. Step up to the plate and throw the ball again. Step up to the plate and throw the ball again. We pitch for Jesus on the mount until we die. And when we're on the mount pitching, we are pitching from victory. We are pitching from victory. We are pitching from victory. Mordecai, I don't know who is going to deliver the Jews, but this is what I know. Somebody's going to deliver them because I'm on the right team. Somebody's going to deliver them because God has already won this thing and worked it out. God has already sovereignly and providentially worked everything to a win for us. And I don't know what that looks like, but I know it. And in my darkest hour, when I'm even going to lose my life, I am still going to go up to the mound and do what I need to do for God because I have won. Mordecai knew this. Deliverance is going to come from somewhere. It can come from you, or it can come from someone else. It should come from us. It should come from us. It should come from us. Jesus says this to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says this, I have said these things to you 
that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. That in me you may have peace. Go serve the Lord and have peace. You have won. In the world, you will have tribulation. When people are attacking you and people are doing things to you, have peace. They're attacking you, but have peace because you're on the winning side. God has overcome the world. Let's pray.